0: Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move and here's your need to know. The banking beats, JP Morgan, Wells Fargo and Goldman Sachs all beating earnings expectations with caveats. Pete on the hill, Facebook set to face a grilling over new cryptocurrency Libra and not backing down. President Trump tackling the squad on Twitter this morning as party pressure mounts. It's only Tuesday, let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. It is a banking bonanza session this week, of course, and we are looking at all three banking earnings this morning. Wells Fargo, JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs. Like I said, a mixed bag and we'll dig through the details very shortly. But first... Let me give you a look at what we're seeing for futures right now, a very modest positive start to the session we're looking at right now after a low volume micro mini gain during the session yesterday. But it was enough, though, to see fresh record highs for the U.S. majors. Now it's all about Fed speak this week, of course, and earning season 10 percent of the S&P 500 companies, as I reminded you yesterday, reporting this week. But let's not forget the economic data. U.S. retail sales rising this morning, some 0.4 percent on last month, twice the level of expected and the fourth straight month of gains for that index. The consumer in the United States remains strong. It follows better than expected factory data on Monday, too. So it's going to be interesting to get the Fed's take this week. But right now, I don't think any amount of good news derails the Fed rate cut in July. What about what's going on in Europe, though? A positive day overall, despite some gloomy numbers from Germany. Investor sentiment plunging yet again last month, with the German export sector continuing to feel the trade war pain. A lesson for the Fed there, too, perhaps, that lower rates, negative rates, in fact, doesn't necessarily mean more growth. But today, the question we're asking is whether low rates will help or hinder the banks, and more importantly, lending, of course, to the real economy because that's where we begin today's drivers and Matt Egan joins us now. The headline here, Matt, I think from all of these results, the US consumer remains strong, but the trading desks are still a challenge. Though Goldman Sachs, let's start there, seem to buck the trend here of uh, weaker trading revenues. Talk us through their results.
1: That's right, Julia. So I I think, as you mentioned, is a little bit of a mixed bag, but there are some common themes between um, the earnings that we've seen so far this week from the big banks. Now, you mentioned the trading situation. Goldman Sachs really did buck the trend here. Um, They were able to report increases in trading revenue, but that's the outlier. Really, we're seeing pressure from the other big banks. And I think what that is, is it's it's a reflection of, of the fact that volatility has come down in capital markets. And while that's a great thing for the average investor, um, it means potentially higher correlations and lower trading volume. And so other than Goldman Sachs, we are seeing pressure there um, on the broader economy, though, as you mentioned, this slowdown that the Federal Reserve is responding to has not arrived in the American household. J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon was talking about how he sees positive momentum from U.S. consumers. They reported double digit increases in credit card sales in Um, Merchant volume and uh, their deposits were up as well. We saw similar positive numbers from Citigroup as well. And, um, you know, the other point, though, and it goes back to the Fed, is that bank profitability is under pressure from the yield curve and all these swings in interest rates. And so J.P. Morgan, the reason why that stock is down at last check uh, about one and a half percent pre-market is because they actually cut their outlook for net interest income, which is the difference that banks make on what they charge on uh, loans and what they make on deposits and so um, you know that that is uh, an issue that I think we're going to continue to see going forward Julia
0: yeah and this is exactly the point and we heard exactly the same from Wells Fargo to a warning here that that bank profitability to your point the amount that they can charge to allow people to borrow from them is going to go down the question is does that impact the real economy here too because they simply are willing to lend less
1: that's right. I mean, that is something that we need to watch out for. Wells Fargo's net interest income was down during the quarter. Um, Citigroup's uh, margins in this area disappointed yesterday. And uh, the interesting thing is that J.P. Morgan sort of signaled that its outlook may have to come down even further if the cut, if the Fed cuts interest rates as many times as the market thinks. So that's something that we'll have to watch. One other major driver, one common theme here is that buybacks are really padding the bottom line here. Wells Fargo said that it repurchased about $5 billion worth of stock during the second quarter. That was nearly double what it did the year before. Um, but what's interesting is that, you know, KBW put out a report yesterday and they said that if you take away buybacks, uh, bank EPS growth would really vanish. So that's something that we'll need to monitor to see whether or not banks are able to continue to return capital.
0: Oh, such a great point, Matt. And I know some people over in D.C. who will be eagerly watching those buyback numbers as well because that's where we head next matt egan great job thank you for that all right two big hearings on capitol hill today in the next hour facebook set to face questions over their new cryptocurrency libra and at 2pm eastern time big tech executives will be grilled on whether or not they simply have too much market power so-called antitrust issues brian fung and claire sebastian are joining us on both of those stories claire i'll start with you because facebook faces the grilling first Lots of negative commentary, including from the Secretary uh, of uh, the Treasury, of course, Stephen Mnuchin, saying he has serious concerns about cryptocurrency. What can Facebook say today to allay some
2: of those concerns, if anything? Yeah, Julia, they face a uh, bipartisan show of skepticism, a barrage of criticism, as you say, going into this. We've had the Fed chair saying there are serious concerns. We've had the president uh, tweeting that he's not in favor of cryptocurrencies, that he sees Libra as lacking dependability. And all of this culminated, as you say, yesterday in a hastily arranged press conference by the Treasury Secretary, Stephen Mnuchin, where he really laid it on quite thick with his criticism uh, of Libra and Facebook. Take a listen to what he had to say.
3: To the extent that Facebook can do this correctly and can have a payment system, you know, correctly with proper AML, that's fine. They got a lot of work to do to convince us to get to that place.
2: So in response to that, Julia, what we're going to see today uh, from uh, David Marcus, who's the head of Calibra, which is Facebook's unit that's going to build applications uh, to use Libra, is a show of really qualified humility. He says that he's going to wait for regulatory approval uh, to launch the project. He says that they'll be, be very uh, sure that they comply with anti-money laundering regulations uh, and all of that. But he's also going to urge uh, Congress not to over-regulate. I want to pull up a quote from the prepared remarks that we've got from him. He says, I believe that if America does not lead in an any innovation in the digital currency and payments area. Others will. If we fail to act, we could soon see a digital currency controlled by others whose values are dramatically different. So he's basically saying if we don't do it, someone else will. And the U.S. needs to lead in this. I think the implication being perhaps better the devil you know there.
0: Yeah, and I completely agree. The remittances business needs disrupting and prices, rates need to come down. I'm simply not sure Facebook is the right company to do it, but we shall see. Claire, thank you for that. Brian, come in here too, because one of the big questions, of course, is going to be asked of the likes of Apple and Amazon, Google. Do they simply have too much market power? Now, this hearing comes after, I believe, months and months of investigation. So hopefully the questions today aren't going to be as uh, lame as perhaps they have been in the past. Am I allowed to say that? Yes, I did. Well, I think that's the
4: hope here. Uh, We're we're (laughs) seeing here a a hearing that compared to the last hearing in this series, um, tackles a much bigger question, which is, you know, just how much power do these tech platforms have in terms of potentially stifling competition and strangling startups? Um, You know, the, the last hearing in this series was very narrowly focused on the technology sector's impact on local journalism. This is a much bigger uh, set of questions here that lawmakers are going to try and get the tech companies to answer. And you have, uh, you know, Apple and Amazon um, sending members of their legal teams uh, to testify. You have Facebook and Google sending members of their policy teams. Um, In addition to that, you know, you've got a number of outside academics, industry experts, and former government officials who are all going to be weighing in, providing context to this question. Um, So it's going to be very interesting. To see this issue outlined in much broader strokes uh, than, you know, perhaps we've seen in previous hearings in this series. And, uh, you know, what we're going to see today is a much bigger reckoning for Silicon Valley um, as it grapples with this massive question about what government lawmakers uh, should do in terms of regulation or new policies or perhaps even uh, a breakup of some of these companies.
0: Yeah it's uh, it's a huge question and the question comes ultimately uh, is the consumer harmed by this because if you want to take antitrust action that's what you have to prove and the belief is it will take years. Thank you very much there to Claire Sebastian and Brian Fung of course and we will continue to talk about this all throughout the day on TV but we've also got you covered on the digital side too you can go to cnn.com/business to watch both hearings live if you want to do that so we've got you covered on all aspects. For now, though, let's uh, move on and talk about some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Donald Trump has taken to Twitter yet again to renew his attacks on four congresswomen. This morning, he accused them of making statements that are anti-Israel, anti-USA and pro-terrorist. He also questioned why the House isn't voting to rebuke what he called, quote, the filthy and hate-laced things they have said, alluding to an expected vote in the House over whether to condemn the president's recent tweets. Joe John joins us once again from Washington. Oh Joe, I don't even know what to say about this at this stage. What we saw yesterday was the squad, of course, these four congresswomen fighting back in a press conference last night, but the president of course continuing to eat this morning. What about this vote? Where do you think this goes next?
5: Well, we do know the House of Representatives is controlled by Democrats, and these are Democrats who've been attacked by the President. And reading through that resolution, while certainly it's going to be non-binding and um, not enforceable or actionable. Um, it quotes a variety of presidents, founding fathers of the United States. And then it sort of gets down to the meat of the language at the very bottom, referring to President Trump's racist comments. And uh, saying he's increased fear and hatred of new Americans and people of color by saying our fellow Americans who are immigrants and those who may look like immigrants, the president uh, says should go back to other countries. So uh, strong language there from them. And uh, that is obviously uh, about the only thing they can do, because uh, this president has repeatedly said stuff like this, though uh, these words are probably uh, some of the most fierce Partly because he's now president of the United States, partly because, of course, these are duly elected members of Congress uh, he is talking about. I think the, the overlay, if you will, of course, is presidential politics has been just about a month since the president made his official announcement for uh, his reelection campaign. And all that indicates is that we're likely to see this kind of thing uh, more in the future.
0: Yeah, Joe, it's a great point. It's the prism that we have to look through this rhetoric um, in order to understand really what's going on here. But, but, you know, when I look at all the commentary that's coming out from whoever here, no one, no one represents the whole here. How do we move away from this and get back to policy and talk about things like the looming debt ceiling, which is, you know, another big issue that, that, that the White House and that Congress here needs to tackle?
5: Right, there are a whole variety of very serious issues that the President and the Congress need to deal with, and and rather quickly as a matter of fact. But we also know that the August recess for the United States Congress is coming up pretty fast as well. So it's not that likely that they're going to get a whole lot done uh, before August. And uh, the the debt ceiling obviously is one of those things that has to be dealt with. but. All this language does is make it a little bit harder for the president and the Democrats on the House side to get together to accomplish anything uh, productive. So uh, you can say that it's probably made it worse.
0: Yeah, my head is shaking. Joe Johns, thank you so much for joining us once again. All right, let's move on. Floods and landslides have killed more than 100 people in Nepal, India, and Bangladesh. As you see here, villages are inundated with water. Hundreds of thousands of people have been displaced and six million people impacted after torrential monsoon rains began over the weekend and triggered flooding rescue operation is underway in Mumbai after a four-story building collapsed, leaving up to 25 people trapped in the rubble. We're told at least four people are dead. Nine people have been rescued so far. The cause of the collapse is not yet known. Mumbai and surrounding areas faced devastating floods just a week ago, as we were mentioning there. The EU Parliament will vote later today on approving the new European Commission president. If Ursula von der Leyen prevails, she will become the first woman to hold the job which oversees the body that shapes EU policy. Leyen is Germany's outgoing defence minister. All right, we're going to take a quick break here on First Move, but still to come from low budget to perhaps no budget. Ryanair cutting capacity in the wake of the Boeing jet crisis. And as Facebook feels the heat on the hill, one tech titan tells us point blank, Libra is a mistake. That's coming up on First Move. Stay with CNN. Welcome back first move. We're looking at a slightly positive open for US stocks this morning. We didn't see much gains yesterday, but we did manage to eke out fresh record highs. We've also had stronger retail sales data than expected from the United States this morning. And the major banks, of course, reporting as we've been discussing, uh, beating earnings as far as the headline numbers are concerned. But as we saw and discussed earlier, the trading desks, of course, still pressured and they have to tackle the low-rate environment right now. Interesting that we spend a lot of time talking about the 12 trillion dollars worth of sovereign debt that has negative yields what about 600 billion dollars worth of corporate debt that has negative yields mostly in Europe lots to discuss here joining us now Alicia Levine she's chief strategist at BNY Mellon Investment Management Always great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me back. You've been writing lists and I love them. What's in the price here for investors and what isn't? Talk me through what's in the price because there's a lot of expectations, high expectations about rate cuts, about no inflation ever again
6: and earnings upgrades too. That's right. So I like making lists because it's a good way of keeping yourself honest when you think about valuations in the market and when you think about putting in fresh capital on a particular day. Right. What is it that you're actually buying? Mm-hmm. So right now investors are they're buying four rate cuts through the end of 2020. They're buying all the earnings power for 2019 coming in that fourth quarter. Yep. They're buying an 11% earnings increase for 2020. And they're buying a trade deal sometime in the autumn. And they're not buying no trade deal. Yep. Right. So they're buying some trade deal. They're buying inflation will never spike again. We'll have low inflation forever. It's gone forever. And you know, so you have to ask yourself, is all the good news in in the market, and the other thing that's really not being priced in, but a particular sector is pricing in, is a more leftist government being voted in in 2020. Oh. So I'm not going to name names here because we don't do that. But the truth- I do Bernie Sanders
0: or Elizabeth Warren potentially, and we know this just by the rhetoric that they say. That's you right. can ignore that and move
6: on. <laughs> right. So the corporate America should be worried about this. So the healthcare sector has right. already priced this in, and the healthcare sector has been underperforming but the rest of the market has not. And so you have to ask the question, like how likely is it that we get a Democratic candidate that is more leftist than what this country has normally been used to and what that means for corporate earnings and for corporate America. I mean, I just love that you're pinpointing
0: all of these things. And it's not just about the politics. It's a hugely important one. But as you were pointing out there, there is a lot of good news baked into the cake or assumed at this stage. Let's talk about rate cuts then. How likely is it that the Fed, and I think everyone now expects them to cut in
6: July, what's the likelihood or the probability that they only cut rates once? Because that's Rare. It is very rare. So I do see a second rate cut by September, right. because the 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 pricing, the, the inflation issue really is pretty low. I mean, right. we just had import prices this morning, and they were pretty low. So I do think there's a second rate cut. You rarely get one cut, but you know the issue is then you're taking some of your dry powder away in case there is a recession one day. I do think it's the right move that 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 ride that rate increase in December was probably a mistake. So they've got to take that one
0: back. Does it help at the margin? Because we've been talking about the banks and whether or not actually lowering rates at this stage will mean that the banks end up lending less. I mean, Germany, and you use this as a great example of where negative rates actually doesn't necessarily
6: stimulate the economy enough. That's right. So Germany is a great example and Europe overall is a great example of... The lowest rates you could possibly have have not really been able to stimulate the real economy, nor have they been able to increase the multiples that that investors pay, you know, for the equity markets. So you have to ask the question, like that one-to-one correspondence that we all make. What is the transmission mechanism right. actually that low rates are boosting this this market and that we are expected to stabilize the economy? I mean, the transition rates in in Europe are very different. That the structure of the banking
0: sector is very different. Um, to the United States. But do you think on the margin it helps banks and it helps lending here in the United States? Because the president arguably is someone who really believes that lower rates here will help.
6: So he's right about one thing. The Fed needs to cut to steepen the yield curve. Right. The Fed must get rid of that inversion on the front end. And cutting rates will do that. And ultimately that will be positive for the banks. In the short term, you've seen with some of the earnings that the net interest margins are coming down by 500 million yeah. dollars should not be a surprise though like yeah. this is not a surprise but you've got to get the fed has to get rid of the inversion yeah, 70, two rate cuts would do it three actually would be better what's going to surprise us in earnings season do you think where is their value
0: when you look either around the world or you look at perhaps where investors should be looking at this moment look
6: i think the u.s consumer we had data as you pointed yeah. out this morning the, the, look the, uh, the american Americans like to shop. Your audience knows our people like to shop. And the consumer is 70% of the U.S. economy, and that is going to prop up the economy. And the question is, can the strength in the consumer side make up for the weakness in the industrial side, and the weakness globally on the industrial side? my bet is yes yeah my bet is yes you see the, the global data stabilizing my shopping habits were anything to go by I'd say yes too we're supporting the
7: economy <laughs> exactly
0: here. single-handedly Alicia Levine. always a pleasure thank you for that thanks Julia all right let's move on now and look at the airline sector Ryanair specifically feeling the pain from the max 737 jets grounding It's saying it has to trim its 2020 growth plans investors though seemingly unfazed which is interesting the shares in Dublin Some two percent higher, almost. Anna Stewart joins me now. Interesting, Anna. When a company says, "Look, we're having a real problem, we have to cut capacity here," and investors go, "Oh, great, that might help your performance." (laughs) Interesting.
8: Yeah, but this problem wasn't really a surprise, was it? The the Boeing 737 Max delays is so well forecast, and actually, I think investors are quite relieved at how conservative. Ryanair are being here. They were meant to have 58 delivered uh, in time for the summer schedule next year. Now they only expect 30. That's because the FAA has to, to go through the whole certificate, certification. Can I say that right, Julia? They need to go through the whole process. They expect to start in September. It could take to the end of the year. They don't expect their planes to be delivered until the beginning of next year. They've cut the growth forecast from 73%. But that was no surprise. But what was Julia was when they said that they might cut back operations at some airports. And abandon others entirely. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one for me.
0: I mean, we know that there is no substitute here for the Boeing 737 Max, but the idea that you cut capacity to such an extent—interesting for negotiations going forward. If you try and add them back, what else? We've also got United Airlines here in the United States reporting. And this is another airline that's had to cut capacity, cancel flights as a result of the uh, Maxjet crisis. What should we expect from these guys, Anna? Because I know you've been looking at these numbers too.
8: Well, generally, Julia, we're expecting quite strong, robust earnings later today that should make up for any issues around the 737 MAX. It's actually a very small pro- uh, proportion of their overall fleet, around 2%, so they're not nearly as impacted as the likes of American or Southwest. So we get those out after the bell. Uh, in terms of Europe, looking at all the sector uh, for aviation prices up today, it is really interesting how they're all really pleased with what Ryanair said. Essentially reducing capacity in Europe means that ticket prices are likely going to go up, not just at Ryanair, but for the rivals at as well, And if you want to be really cynical with today's news from Ryanair, you could also look at the fact that announcing that they're going to renegotiate contracts or have discussions with airports that are underperforming and suggests that they might be trying to get some better deals.
0: <laughs> or even raise ticket prices, perhaps, Anna, as well. But we would never World be pipe. that sceptical would we ever yeah. Anna Stewart. <laughs> thank you so much for that all right we are counting down to the market open this morning the banks very much front and center goldman sachs looks set for a bit of a pop here jp morgan under a little pressure pre-market we will have the open for you in just a few moments time and plenty more to come on the show you're watching first move stay with cnn Cases here on Tuesday at the New York Stock Exchange, and that was the opening bell we were expecting flat start to the trading session today. Remember, anything in the plus column today means a fresh record high for these U.S. majors. So keep that in mind as we see the session progress. We also had some strong retail sales numbers out from the United States as we were talking through with Alicia there. The U.S. consumer remains strong, up some 0.4 percent in June. Numbers are better even if you strip out the gas component day. It could even see a boost to Q2 growth estimates here in the United States. United States too. Also, on the inflation front, U.S. import prices falling almost 1% last month. What's the Fed going to make of this? Well, it clears the way again for that rate cut in July, of course, and we're gearing up for plenty of to speak, including Jay Powell, of course, today speaking on monetary policy before their quiet period begins this weekend. All right, so let's take a look at some of our global movers in the session today. Alphabet shares in focus falling on a tweet from President Trump this morning saying his administration will look into the billionaire tech investor Peter Thiel's claim that Google committed, quote, treason. Thiel accused the search engine of working with China. You remember, we talked about that story on the show yesterday. Well, Alphabet in focus now. J.P. Morgan also under a bit of pressure here. The bank posting a record Q2 profit, $6.9 billion. That was a 16% jump year on year. However, it also posted a fourth straight drop in fixed income trading revenue. And it warned that lending income will fall in the second half of this year. And that was the key, I think, for what investors are reacting to today. Domino's Pizza, the pizza chain, same score sales growth missed S. Estimates—they've been adding stores in order to achieve faster delivery. They added nearly two 200 stores during the quarter. Skeptics are arguing though, that the tactics are hurting the same store sale growth. Are they cannibalizing purchases from existing stores? It's an interesting question. Johnson and Johnson profits jumping some 42% in the second quarter. All of their three business units beating expectations here, of course, but it does come as the company is facing a handful of legal issues, and we've discussed those of course on the show before all right Let's move on here. She's a former presidential candidate, the first woman ever, in fact, to lead a Fortune 50 company and is an author of three books. Carly Fiorina is our next guest. Fiorina is best known for her six-year tenure as the CEO of tech company Hewlett-Packard. Her term began in 1999, a year after Google, in fact, was founded. It then ended in 2005, just 12 months after Mark Zuckerberg launched Facebook. So as Congress begins, two days of hearings on antitrust issues in the tech sector and Facebook's cryptocurrency Libra, I asked Fiorina for her take on the industry since her time and for what she thinks of Facebook's
7: latest venture into cryptocurrencies. Listen, I have long known that power concentrated is power abused. It's always true. If you concentrate too much power in too few hands, that power will be abused. It's true in politics, and it's true in business. And so when I look at the tech sector, what I see now is too much power concentrated in too few hands, the power that companies like Amazon, Facebook, and Google have over our lives over information the concentration that they have achieved in many cases by gobbling up others in many cases by uh, not earning a profit in the stock market letting that go on for years and years and years because the market focused only on growth they have amassed enormous power and so it's not enough for a founder or a CEO like Mark Zuckerberg to say trust me I have good intentions it's simply not enough and so I do think we've come to the point now where there has to be some transparency and accountability over all that concentrated power. And that can only come through some level of regulation and requirement. I believe one regulates to a floor not to a ceiling and what I mean by that is a minimum set of expectations need to be regulated expectations about how information is treated expectations about information that is provided expectations about the power that a consumer will always have and the accountability that they can demand from these companies
0: how many years does that take If we be honest with ourselves, and as you said, business is tied to politics, the lobby power is so huge. How
7: many years does it take? Yes, well, it it is uh, enormous power concentrated in the tech sector. And of course, the tech sector has been very smart about providing enormous dollars principally over time to the democrat party who normally would be pushing for regulation and who has not and don't think it's a coincidence and of course republicans have been wanting to get money from the tech sector so it does take a long time and what i think it takes is wisdom and that's not always um, true in politics either what i actually would recommend is that these companies step forward and provide some guidance instead of just saying no 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 is to get engaged in the problem solving process because if they don't engage in it something will happen to them when you
0: look at facebook and they step forward and they announce at this moment that they're going to launch their own cryptocurrency i mean there's a huge irony here what do you think when when facebook announces something so huge is this? So
7: pivotal, potentially, is this? Yes. Well, first, I think over the long run, it will be a mistake. Now that's a bold statement to make. In the short run, it may be hugely successful, but in the long run, I think what it will do is continue to raise concerns, and it will continue to make people uncomfortable. My goodness, now without any banks involved, without any information, they're suddenly getting into money as well. I think over time this is gonna be a problem for them.
0: Scrutiny as a result of a foray into cryptocurrency for Facebook. It was an interesting point. Now, cast your mind back to 2016. Carly Fiorina ran for the Republican presidential nomination. If you remember, it was the same election that saw Hillary Clinton make history as the first woman ever to be nominated as a presidential candidate. I spoke to Carly before the recent controversy over comments made by the U.S. President Donald Trump about four non white U.S. Congresswomen, which, of course, many have condemned as racist. But what she had to say about running as a woman and and differences in politics and the treatment, I think, of women versus men seems pretty pertinent in light of what we've seen. Listen
7: in. When you're different, it's different. It's always true. When you're different, it's different. The scrutiny is different. The criticism is different. The expectations are different. The commentary is different. I think the women who are running in this cycle are doing a very good job of getting their voices heard. Their voices are getting a lot of attention, and that is a very good thing. And yet it will be a different experience for them than it will be for the men. This is something I've dealt with all my life. People used to ask me, aren't you nervous being the only woman on the debate stage? I said, you know, honestly, it's the story of my life. I've usually been the only woman in the room. But it's true that when I left the debate stage, sometimes people would ask my team what shoes I was wearing or the designer of my dress. I don't think they asked the male candidates that. Yeah, you don't need to talk to me about that.
0: <laughs> I understand that completely. <laughs> do you think, um, do you think a, a woman like a Kamala Harris could actually take the, the Democratic nomination and ultimately win
7: the presidency? Do you think we could see that? I think we can see a woman president. I think it's possible that a woman will win the Democratic nomination. I think the issue is going to be when we get to the general, and we have a long way to go, and many things can happen. Uh, I think in the end, what it will come down to on the general election is the positions of each side. And so I think if the Democrats continue to list further and further to the left and uh, are actually advocating the elimination of private health insurance or the opening of all of our borders I think those are going to be losing positions but is the country ready for a woman president if she espouses the right positions yes I think they are
0: Carly's written three books her latest is called find your way unleash your power and highest potential I asked her what her years at the top of business and her experience with politics
7: has taught her about leadership I've learned more than anything that leadership is not about position or title. We tend to call people leaders because they've achieved a big position and they hold a big title, but the truth is that's not what makes them a leader. And there are a lot of people with titles who don't lead. Leadership, in the end, is about problem solving. It's about seeing possibilities. It's, in particular, about unlocking potential in other people so that they can help change the order of things for the better. The purpose of leadership is problem solving, in fact.
0: Carly Farina there. All right, we're going to take a quick break again here on First Move. But coming up, the journey from tweets to Uber Eats. We speak to Twitter's co-founder about his latest company and its partnership with the ride-hailing firm. Stay with CNN. slogan of Olo, a platform that integrates online orders into the workflow of a busy restaurant kitchen. The company works with 250 restaurant brands and has recently skipped the line to partner with Uber Eats. Joining us in the chat room is the company's co-founder and CEO, Noah Glass. Noah, fantastic to have you with us. I mean, you work with a lot of these guys, Postmates, Caviar, DoorDash, but it does feel like Uber Eats is... um, pretty big swinger in this area.
9: It is, yeah, Uber Eats is part of a a cohort of companies that are helping restaurants to get into the world of delivery when they don't have delivery capacity in-house. So The restaurant's able to just prepare the food, have it ready and waiting for the driver. The driver picks it up and then takes it directly from the restaurant to the consumer. And it's opening up this on-demand experience to consumers all across the United States.
0: So what is Olo? Tell me about what the technology is and what your platform provides to to these guys that, as you said, are providing a sort of conduit to restaurants and to consumers that basically can't be bothered to go to a restaurant and want seafood delivered.
9: That's right. Well, we're the Olo is the leading digital ordering platform and delivery enablement platform for restaurant brands all across the country. There are now over 70,000 restaurants that use the Olo platform to allow their consumers to order ahead, pay ahead and get their food faster at the restaurant or now get it delivered to them. So these are brands like Wingstop and Shake Shack and Sweetgreen, brands you probably order from every day. Uh, We're not a consumer brand, so it's our technology that's powering that experience. Um, and really enabling restaurants to play in this world of on-demand The smartphone has the remote control for buying things around you and meet the needs of that consumer who now doesn't want to go to the restaurant sometimes but wants the food to come to them. I
0: mean, you've seen huge growth in the number of orders that you're processing. I saw a great statistic 100 million orders in the 12 and a half years to last year, and you doubled that last year. So, I mean, the exponential growth that you're seeing here is phenomenal.
9: Yes, yeah, we saw 100 million transactions last year across our platform. Yeah. 100 million again the first six months of this year. So that exponential growth just continues we've been around for 14 years we're actually founded june 1st 2005. Tri- trivia 25 years to the day after cnn was founded but the company's been doubling every year and we see that continuing as part of this seismic shift towards digital ordering and delivery and really off-premise food consumption
0: who pays do, do you get a cut of the orders that are put through, because when you mentioned Shake Shack, Green, McDonald's is another one, I'm sure. I mean, the power that these guys have to perhaps push back on how much they pay you is far greater than an individual restaurant mm-hmm. would be able to do, but would still like to be able to use your services.
9: Well, our platform is not a commission-based platform. It's not a 20-30% to 30% commission on every order. Rather, it's a software platform and it's right. in the software-as-a-service mold. So the brands are paying a flat fee per store per month, either the corporate stores or the franchisees. And there's a small transaction fee associated with the delivery transactions that come across our platform. And that's what's really growing quickly.
0: What does the future hold? What's the most exciting thing to you? Is it the possibility of perhaps one of these big companies taking you in-house like an Ubery and letting everybody else
9: use your platform?
0: do you intend to stay independent and keep doing your thing?
9: So I've been doing this for 14 years. We've been a company for 14 years. We want to stay independent for the long term. We think we're in the very early innings of what is a massive shift in the way that consumers like to eat. And it's really incumbent on us to stay independent and to be an open platform and to work with all the restaurants that want to use the platform, all the point of sale companies, all the delivery companies. Um, Everybody using Olo as a common carrier is really our vision of the status quo and also the future.
0: Very quickly, are you profitable?
9: Um, we don't cover those, uh, <laughs> those financials publicly. Awesome. <laughs> um, I should say that we're, we're in a very strong position uh, with a very strong balance sheet. We did a funding round at the end of last right. year, but it wasn't for funds for the company. It was just for long term early employees in the company. And the company didn't take any money. This is a round that we did with Tiger Global. He's been a great investor in the tech space, but the food tech space uh, specifically.
0: The hint from that is that you're definitely more than breaking even if you didn't need it for the operating of the business, Noah. We'll get you back because I want to talk autonomous technology and what impact that's going to have going forward too. Noah Glass, thank you so much thank for you. that. All right, South Korea may be one of the most high-tech countries on Earth, but when it comes to energy, it's still very much stuck in the past. Fascinating, look at this. As John Terrace explains, the gears of change are slowly grinding, paving the way for renewable energy in South Korea. Listen in.
10: If you think about it, South Korea is a victim of its own success. Growth has been driven by making autos computer chips, mobile phones, telecommunications equipment, even steel. But the common link here is they're all energy intensive. It's known locally as the Han River dynasty, South Korea's six decade long industrial revolution. From the ashes of the Korean War to Asian economic tiger. But in the of K-pop sensations and all things high tech, South Korea remains very 20th century when it comes to energy. Why was it slow adapting to the renewable energy market, would you say? Uh, Korean people enjoyed low price of electricity due to coal generation
4: and the nuclear generation. But because of the uh, social issues like uh, air pollution, the people start to appreciate the value of renewable energy.
10: Shinsong makes cutting-edge solar cells they say can boost average output by 25%. After a dozen years of sluggish growth due to intense competition from China, these shipments are destined for the United States and Canada as demand rises. 630 kilowatt solar panel on the rooftop. CEO Kim shows me how the sun powers 40% of their their own operational needs. But that is certainly not the norm in the country. The government's goal is to more than triple solar and wind energy by 2030. John Defterius, CNN, Seoul.
0: First move and a look at today's boardroom brief. A US federal judge has slashed the damages Bayer is to pay out in a case relating to the weed killer Roundup. The German firm had been ordered to pay more than $80 million to a California man who claimed it caused his cancer. However, the judge reduced the award to just over $25 million. Bayer says it still plans to appeal. Burberry's new chief designer, Ricardo Tisci, is providing a bumper boost to sales. Revenue is up by 4% in the three months to the end of June, double what was expected. Burberry's latest collection under him are proving popular in China, which accounts for up to 40% of sales. Tesla shares are falling after the company announced yet another tweak of the pricing models. It's down some, what, nine-tenths of 1%. Peter Valdez de Pina joins me now. Peter, I was trying to pore over the details of this. I think the base now price for the Model S and the X is significantly more expensive. But for the Model 3, the standard is a bit lower. Do I have that right?
3: That sounds about right, Uh clearly tesla's model 3 is the is the, is the driving force these days behind tesla's sales so what tesla's trying to do here really is simplify its lineup of model s and x cars which are getting less popular but at the same time you know they're moving toward the longer uh, long range versions of those cars which are going to be the base model which makes sense because the long range version really doesn't have a bigger bigger battery pack than the standard versions. It just had more efficient parts. So it makes sense, I think, to drop that less efficient version from the lineup, maybe push the Model uh, X and S up market, which I think is what they're doing, concentrate more on the Model 3 and the upcoming Model Y crossover SUV. In all, they're just trying to make their manufacturing job, I think, a bit, a bit easier.
0: You know, I looked at a quote in one uh, car magazine, and, and one analyst was saying, quote, Tesla's chaotic pricing strategy is kind of a running joke at this point. <laughs> Peter, do, do you agree with that? I mean, if you were a consumer going into a car lot and haggling with a salesperson or shifting around and trying to, to do these things in a way that Tesla doesn't because it doesn't have a sort of marketing, a broader spend on marketing strategy, this would be happening. Tesla just does yeah. it up front. Do you agree Tesla, with that? I'm kind of right, Tesla with has
3: I agree. I certainly agree with that. Tesla does have have upfront pricing, but it almost depends on whether I go buy a car this week or next week. Uh, what the available option packages are. Confusing thing is somewhat is Tesla, unlike pretty much every other auto manufacturer, doesn't use a model year system. Tesla doesn't say the 2019 Model X is different from the 2018 Model X, and here are the differences and here is the pricing. Every other automaker does that on a year by year basis. Tesla kind of makes these changes to the lineup, to the technology on a running basis. I think I've actually said before, I think it might be a good idea for Tesla to follow the auto industry model here and start doing this on an annual basis so customers understand year by year, this is what I'm getting with this vehicle, this is what the price is, we're not going to have another big pricing change until the next model year.
2: Yes,
0: we're on the same page, Peter Valdez de Pina. However, had I paid $20,000 to get that ludicrous package thrown in, I might have a problem because that now gets thrown in for free, but we shall see. Peter, great to have you with us. All right, quick look at the markets as we head towards the end of the show. I make that fresh record highs. Positive territory, any gain today, or for the Dow, not for the S&P 500. Watch this space. That was it for First Move. Time to go make yours.